Well, good morning. <laughs> My name is uh, Reverend James White. And, you know, it's, at some point, though, I'm a little confused in how to refer to myself because it's interesting. I've been journeying uh, here with Southeastern uh, really since 1990s when I did my first chapel here. But in the last couple of years, I've had the incredible gift of being an adjunct uh, professor here with you all, teaching a class with Dr. Lederbach on social justice and race. So I think I've got to start, and this is new, I've got to start referring to myself that I'm at home. Uh, so it is good to be with you uh, today. Now, I'm going to just suggest that maybe we won't engage in the full decorum of being in a library. I think uh, we will have a conversation today. And I think that today we're going to have a conversation that's probably what I would suggest is a very unique and historic conversation for a variety of reasons. Not just for Southeastern, but I think unique in light of the world and the times that we're living in. Uh, for me as well today, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, those of us who will be in this conversation uh, today. And I think as you look up front, already you see some interesting dynamic. Uh, the diversity is not simply uh, race, but the diversity is age. The diversity is life experience. There's a level of dimensions of diversity that is just incredible and fascinating. Uh, I think, for this moment and this opportunity that we have. So what I want to do now is introduce uh, those of us who are going to be in the conversation. Uh, first, I'm going to begin with uh, Dr. Donald Matthews. Uh, Dr. Matthews, uh, again, graduated from the College of Idaho in 1954. Uh, bachelor, he got his divinity degree at Yale University and his doctor of philosophy at Duke. Uh, university for a number of years. He was an instructor at Duke, uh, assistant professor at Princeton University, and then professor of history uh, at North Carolina Chapel Hill since 1968, where he's now professor emeritus. And uh, Dr. Matthews has written some wonderful books uh, on our topic uh, that are just fascinating and very piercing. And I'm just excited uh, that he's here today as well. Uh, Next to him is Dr. Will Willman. Uh, Dr. Willman uh, graduated from Watford College, also his Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School. Uh, again, his doctorate from Emory University. Uh, Dr. Willman was bishop in the United Methodist Church. Uh, he served, Professor Willman, Willman has served as dean of the Duke Chapel and professor of Christian ministry at Duke for 20 years. Uh, he's now back at Duke. Uh, after serving as bishop as the North Alabama Conference from 2004-2012. Dr. Wilman is the author of some 70 books. Uh, his worship, his pastoral care was selected as one of the 10 most useful books for pastors. Uh, in 1979, by the Academy of the Parish Clergy, he's sold more than a million copies of books. Now, I first met Dr. Wilman. This is my first time meeting him personally, but I first met him in my early days. I was on staff with crew for 19 years, uh, but in 1983, uh, his book was one of the first books uh, that I had ever read uh, on preaching. And here's what, what I loved about him is that he, he exploded some of my narrow evangelical frameworks uh, because I said, boy, this United Methodist man is speaking of Jesus and with a biblical framework of scripture that was just intriguing and fascinating. And so begin to read his work in Leadership Journal, Christianity Today uh, as well. 
Dr. Wilman has done a number of things with seminaries, and if you Google him online, there's some of his messages that I would encourage you uh, to listen to that will really speak to you. Then we have uh, Colin Adams. Uh, professor Adams is assistant professor uh, of psychology in the Department of Psychology at St. Augustine's University. Uh, uh, professor Adams is responsible for academically advising students and teaches courses such as psychology, abnormal psychology, psychology of adjustment, and his favorite course is psychology of the African-American community. Uh, over the years, he's developed a passion for serving uh, those youth and leaders who are typically at the <clears throat> margins of our world that we forget. Uh, he's worked in professional outlets that include secondary education, case management, family counseling, juvenile justice and gang prevention. He's a graduate of Hampton University, where he received the BA in sociology. He's also completed his master of psychology and criminal justice at the University of Toledo. He's also received his master's of theology through Liberty University and currently is in his PhD uh, program there at Liberty. He's a native of Toledo, Ohio, and, and he wanted me to make sure that you knew that his sweetheart of 12 years, and they're the proud parents of uh, two twins, Connor, and Kennedy. Uh, Colin is also unique in that uh, we journey together. He's uh, one of our teaching elders at our Church of Christ Our King Community Church. So as you can see, we're from Duke University, Hampton University, and by the way, I graduated from East Carolina University. I'm a pirate. Yale University. So there's a level of, of diversity of thinking and thought. But I'm excited as well for you being here in this conversation. Now, typically when we have conversations uh, like this, uh, we typically think of praying for the speaker. But one of the things that I think we miss is the challenge that it is to listen, especially to listen around topics of trauma in history like this. So what I want to do is pray for all of us to really be able to listen in a way that deals with our biases, in a way that deals with already how our brains function, whenever you use words like lynching. Even the idea of the lingering effects of lynching on your mystery, on your ministry, we often miss that what happens in history is very much today. And those of us who are biblical people understand that. Because we, of course, go back to 2,000 years and know that what happened 2,000 years ago are prevalent with us right here in the present. So let me pray for us all right now. Thank you. Thank you that what we're engaging in is a culmination of conversations of literally hundreds of years. And thank you that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have great joy that the seeds of their legacy are engaging in work that is redemptive and restorative. So would you continue to speak and be present, the God of all justice, the God of righteousness and grace, the God of redemption, and the God who is alive because he is risen. 
So would you bring to bear that kind of power and perspective even in our time today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, I would say the other thing that's important in this space today, too, is for you to be authentically who you are. Uh, This is a space where all of us engage the story from different places. And that is the beauty. I think that is the beauty of real diversity, real inclusion of thought. And that is the beauty of the body of Christ. And so I would invite you, uh, as you listen, that this is an opportunity to participate in the experience. What is incredible for me is, for the two of you, Dr. Wellman and Dr. Matthews, your books encounter a very unique experience uh, with lynching. Uh, And Dr. Matthews, I want to begin with you. If you could tell us about your book, because both of you have written books on lynching. And I want you to talk about your book yourself. But talk about, again, your involvement with this subject and how that came to be and even your book. There are two things. First of all, to follow up with Professor Adams' statement, a recent book by Angela Sims called Lynch, the Power of Memory in a Culture of Terror calls the United States at the present time a culture of terror. That's the subtitle of the book. Sociologically, we know now uh, that the number of lynchings in a geographic area, counties and states, is significantly related to, one, the number of homicides in southern counties, two, practice of the death penalty, three, church burnings in the late 1990s, four, levels of incarceration between 1972 and 2000, and rise of segregationist academies throughout the South. Lynching still hovers over our culture. I got interested in the lynching of Sam Hose um, when I thought I was going to write a book on religion in the New South (laughs) after I'd written a book on religion in the Old South. Uh, And as I began the the research, I discovered uh, an article by a a Methodist uh, minister's wife defending the lynching of Sam Hose. So I started to look into this lynching at that time. And over the next few years, I continued research. I wrote articles on lynching and religion. And then finally, and and (laughs) finally, uh, after what seemed like a long journey, and uh, yeah. <laughs> there's the book. Uh, I wrote in uh, 2018, uh, the uh, lynching uh, at the alt- at the altar of lynching, at the altar of lynching, mm-hmm. and I focused on Sam Hose. Now you ask me why I got interested in it. There's a personal reason. Yes. My grandfather was lynched. Now I have to say my grandfather was not lynched. He survived, but he was brutalized, and he became really dysfunctional as a human being, and he became an abusive father. He brutalized my uncle and my father, and then 
realizing what he had done, he withdrew inside of himself. And that was the rest of his life, inside of himself, just avoiding any memories of what had happened. But my father remembered what had happened because the mob had come to my grandfather's house, tried to get a black family who lived nearby, and he was my grandfather's foreman. My grandfather was fairly wealthy in Oklahoma. He fended off the, the, the mob, got away. My grandfather finally went to a prayer meeting with my grandmother. My grandfather hated to go to prayer meetings. He says, I don't have anything to do with it. He went to this prayer meeting. Afterwards, he was, he was taken out into a grove, and he was brutalized by beating his head almost, and, 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 you know, beyond recognition. Now, that got me interested, but I, I didn't talk about it for years. And, and I, have no, I have no reason. I don't, can't explain why I didn't start then to do it. did other things. Sam Hose was lynched in 1899 because he was supposed to have raped a white woman and killed a white man. He, pro he admitted to killing the white man in self-defense. <clears throat> it wasn't until about five or six days that they decided he had raped the white wife. And he became, through the newspapers at the time, a monster that had to be destroyed. And they sought him for 12 days. They finally got him, and they burned him alive after cutting him to pieces. And his name was Tom Wilkes. But he died as Sam Hose. And I got it. That, that was the, the model, the metaphor, for all the lynchings that we've studied. And that's how I got involved in it. I thought if I could just focus on one, I could tease it out. Dr. Wilma, you've done something similar in your book about Willie Earl. So tell us about your journey. Um, well, I didn't do it as, in as much depth and um, long as Dr. Matthews uh, has really contributed so much. That, um, I was born in Greenville, South Carolina. The year I was one year old, a young man was taken out of a jail in Pickens, South Carolina by a mob of, of Greenville, predominantly taxi drivers, uh, who alleged that he had stabbed to death uh, one of their fellow taxi drivers. They took him out, they tortured him, uh, and killed him uh, on the outskirts of Greenville, South Carolina. Um, a trial was held three months later, and um, the FBI got 21 confessions from the 23 accused lynchers, and a trial was held and attracted international attention, and all of the 
accused lynchers were acquitted. And uh, it was uh, kind of like the biggest thing that ever happened in Greenville, South Carolina. Well, I had to wait till I was 19 years old and in college before I ever heard about it. Uh, it was so sealed quiet. And it began a kind of lifetime interest in it, in the trial of Willie Earl. Last month, uh, the complete book by a friend of ours, uh, uh, They Stole Him Out of Jail, gives the, is the definitive history of the lynching and the subsequent trial, which with the trial was kind of a double tragedy. Um, but I'm a Methodist preacher. What interested me was in the little town of Pickens, there was a white Methodist preacher, Holly Lynn, who woke up in the morning to say they, they took uh, a Negro out of jail last night and uh, he said, what? And uh, he and Holly Lynn was, uh, his wife had died in childbirth three months before. He had a little infant daughter, uh, and uh, who I was in college with later. Um, the church had burned, the Methodist church had burned in August. They were meeting in the high school agricultural room. Well, Holly Lynn organized a public meeting, all-white meeting, a drawing from various lay leaders of the churches in town to draft a public statement that this was wrong, uh, this is not picking South Carolina and all. The meeting was broken up uh, when a group of people started shouting, uh, these these lynchers should be given an award for what they've, the money they've saved to the county and all. Uh, the meeting broke up in pandemonium, and on the way, Holly Lynn started composing a sermon about uh, the sin that had occurred. <coughs> and two weeks later, he preached a sermon, Who Lynched Willie Earl? And in the sermon, he, he starts out, uh, Who Lynched Willie Earl? Well, we all know the answer to that. I mean, 20-something people have signed confessions. Uh, people from another county came into our county, took a man out of jail. Uh, then he paused for effect, and he said, Who lynched Willie Earl? We did. You did. Uh, and then he, in his sermon, he talked about every time a joke was told and you laughed, uh, every time you supported the politicians of South Carolina and racial segregation, uh, every time uh, we kept the black man down uh, with edu inferior education and voter suppression. And um, it was quite a remarkable thing for the time. In fact, uh, in, in our research, we could only find one other church, a Baptist church in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where the lynching was mentioned in a white church. Uh, Holy Lynn later said that uh, he, he was kind of amazed he didn't get any negative reaction from the sermon. But he said, later I got to thinking, that, that's a shame. <laughs> he said, they, 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 my congregation had so many resources for dealing with 
resisting the truth that they didn't respond negatively to my sermon because they were skilled at saying that's the truth. We're not going use the word in, internalize, you know, and, and all. Anyway, uh, so my interest in lynching and, and that lynching was was really in the white Christian response. Lynching is a crime done by Christians against other Christians in America, and uh, it is, I think, right. It is America's original sin. Uh, there is a sad sense in which America needed lynching. Uh, lynching is terrorism, public uh, terrorism. I'm glad Dr. Matthews mentioned. It's kind of amazing. If you look at the states, including North Carolina, where capital punishment is practiced, still practiced, uh, people are still condemned to execution. There is an uncanny, exact correlation between the rate of capital punishment in North Carolina and the rate of lynching in North Carolina. You go to Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, higher. Well, uh, so to me, lynching is, is not only a psychological trauma, it is, it is a theological issue, it is a call for preaching, and therefore James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which I began my book with a quote from, uh, one would think that as Christians, when we say God, the God who comes to us as Jesus Christ was a victim of kind of extrajudicial, public, torturous death by the government and a consortium of government religious leaders. We, we, we ought to have a special word to offer uh, in, in this regard. And uh, as a preacher today, as a white, aging preacher, as you can see, uh, I, the thing that interests me is where do preachers get the divine authorization to speak up, like Holly Lynn spoke up, to confess our complicity and our sin, and then to push our people to the point of saying, let's see if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, or not. Let's do a little experiment on that. Can he save people who live in a land whose history is so deeply embedded in lynching, uh, and uh, so that I'll stop there. Well, I, I want to continue because uh, <laughs> you both have said things that are disturbing. Mm -hmm. So here's my question, and you can weigh on this as well. And I'm not asking you to <clears throat> to sort of read the minds of the crowds, but when we, whenever we see the images, we see crowds of people, and we see men, women, and children. That's right. What is it that was going on in that time period? From your research, from your thinking, even from your experience, that could cause crowds of people to think that this is a part of the fabric of justice in America. 
You had a context of historical racism in the South and the United States generally. Whites have always felt threatened by blacks. They have the whites have created the threat. <laughs> they have emphasized something that didn't exist, and at the same time, it did exist because there was a challenge simply by being Christian and black to the white who were Christians, established the church, and kept them in slavery. So you have, I mean, we not only talk about lynching, we have to go back and talk about slavery, it, the racism that made slavery possible, what wealth was created by slavery. The United States of America was industrialized on the wealth of the cotton trade to Europe. British industrialist American merchants and southern slaveholders are together in this and that slavery. We don't want to talk about slavery anymore. Whites especially, I remember trying to explain to people why I was working on the lynching uh, of this particular man and the, the people saying to me, well, I, I, I never owned slaves. My people never owned slaves. I didn't lynch. My people didn't lynch. Why can't we begin our understanding of the context of racism with the prayer of confession, not the accusation of others who challenge us? You know, it's the... When you have Reconstruction destroyed by redemption, when you have <clears throat> emancipation changed by a new uh, slavery and segregation, when you have lynching, lynching is merely the extreme of racial dominance and white supremacy that continued and continues to this day. That's what it is. And then we have to understand, when we talk about lynching, don't put it there, put it here. Put it here. That's what these, I mean, the fact that the death penalty and incarceration <coughs> is mostly embraced among counties and states that lynching was high tells us something about ourselves. And we have to face that. We should face it. And we should confess it. So there's a lot of uh, research <clears throat> out right now where... Uh, individuals who are, who are looking at behavior uh, are trying to better explain um, violent acts committed by young people. Uh, one of the things that is commonly argued is that uh, violent acts committed by youth is the product of early exposure to violence. Yes. So one of the things that they're arguing is, is that early exposure to violence creates violent acts because over time an individual can be desensitized to violence. Right. So when we think about, as uh, Pastor uh, White mentioned, I'm gonna need that real quick. Uh, once we, we think about what Pastor uh, White has mentioned, uh, when we look at the images, right, and when we look at some of the faces, right, how, how we, and actually I'm gonna I'm gonna put a couple of these uh, images up, and and I want us to just look at the crowd. Okay. Okay. Um, ultimately, I, I, I so appreciate what was said, right? Let's let's take it from here and put it here, right? Uh, but this would be a great visual, right? Let's, let's look at the crowd. Let's look at some of the images. Um, we see one man on the ground, and we see two men hang, hanging, okay? 
uh, one of the things that all three have in common, besides, of course, the fact that they're African-American males, uh, their shirts are taken off, which is very, very representative of the auction blocks that would happen during slavery, where they were completely dehumanized and, ex- and inspected, right, uh, emasculated in a sense. But then when you look at the crowd and you look at the faces, we're talking about a horrific scene where a picture is taken and celebrated. And in many cases, facing the camera. Yes, ma'am. And one of the other things that we know is that in many cases, these photos were used for postcards and sent throughout the nation. Isn't isn't that a postcard? uh, uh, It It is. is. Uh, Let's look at a couple more. So. Uh, again, right, that's, we, we that's see, famous one, yeah. and, and if we look at the gentleman on the front row, we see him looking at the camera and pointing back, right? And, and in many senses, right, that, that's a message, right? So, again, we're talking about communities witnessing this, experiencing this, and it's almost as if it's communicated, this can happen to you as well, right? Uh, let's keep going. Uh, this image right here is very painful because this is an individual who's set on fire, And I believe the narrative behind this is that this individual, and I hate to be too graphic, but after being burned, castrated, body cut into pieces, and the pieces of his body used as souvenirs placed on mantles across the nation in homes. Uh, Not just males. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Um, Not just men, but women, right? Again, right? We see him chained to a tree, right? Literally chained to a tree, set on fire. Um, But. Images like this are painful because as we're looking at this, we see a young girl smirking at the dead body of an individual who's been brutalized. Um, Again, right, more images of children. Um, This image right here, an individual is chained to a tree and his hands are tied behind his back, lifted by what could have been a horse or a car or just multiple brute strength men, multiple men with brute strength pulling his his hands back. So here's the deal, right? So we're talking about um, early exposure to violence being desensitized, right? So I love the fact that what was mentioned is when we talk about uh, how individuals can smile and participate in pictures of people being lynched and brutalized, well, that goes back to a narrative that goes back to the 16th century, right, where, of course, well, of course, we know now it's 2019, so we're celebrating 400 years, right, from 1619, where 20 or so uh, Africans arrive in Jamestown, but one of the things that we know is that African Americans, or Africans in general, were actually enslaved prior to that uh, in places such as Portugal. I mean, as many as 800 a year are arriving in Portugal on an annual basis for the purpose of working, right? But here's the deal. We're talking about centuries of a narrative of dehumanization. Uh, You are less than human. You are ape-like in nature. Uh, Your hair is not hair. It is like the wool of animals. Uh, You you have uh, this kind of innate hypersexuality. All of these narratives are being painted leading into what is a symptom of racism and slavery, which is lynching. So how can individuals smile and take pictures next to a body because they've had centuries of desensitization? You know, you've ended with a rhetorical question. How, how, I mean, how can, well, we've had centuries, but um, it, you know, uh, uh, it, 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 I think it behooves us, looking at these horrible images and this, uh, this history that, uh, how does it continue, you know, centuries later, and, uh, uh, <clears throat> it seems to me Christians should be 
concern, you know, we, we've got a president who cannot rule this country without vilifying brown people at the border. Uh, we've got these caravans, we've got these hordes, all those are code words used uh, related to lynching previously. And uh, that's, I have a historical explanation for why uh, a weak politician would talk like that. Uh, however, it, it does concern me when Christians allow, knowing what we should know, uh, you know, allow that sort of language to go on about fellow human beings for whom Jesus Christ died. And uh, Dr. Matthews asked a question, you know, why can't we confess? <laughs> you, you, one reason we can't confess is if you don't believe in a God that forgives sinners, then then do what most Americans do about lie, <laughs> deny. Uh, and that's a prejudiced Christian comment, I know. But uh, it... I think this is a theological test. Is it possible that Jesus Christ can produce people who can tell the truth about our past, about our parents, our grandparents? Uh, and we, and, and I think, so therefore, this is a contemporary test for the church. Uh, or do we just continue... Uh, you know, when the president says, I've never apologized for anything, I will not apologize. Well, you know, you'd think it'd be a great time for Christians to come up and say, oh, we love to apologize. We call it confession. And uh, <laughs> we don't have to be deceitful. Jesus Christ has actually made us to be able to do that. So there's a lot at stake here. And, uh, well... You're right, Dr. Matthews, you mentioned confession and those ideas and realities. You've intertwined in your book, again, the impact of religion and lynching and how the two are together. Here is my question, because when we hear this conversation already, Dr. Wilman, again, you've mentioned some words that our brains, as soon as we hear you talk about the president, our brains go, uh-oh, he's coming with a liberal agenda. As soon, as soon as you mention certain words on this subject, our internal biases can just shut us down from even hearing and yeah. listening. Why does that happen to us as Christians? We go conservative. We try to... Why, does that, why do we have those categories, which Dr. Matthews just mentioned very plainly, confession and those ideas... Why don't we hear that plainly as Christians? Why do we as Christians tend to go into categories so that we don't even deal with this issue? I can remember the responses to the lynching of Tom Wilkes. The Methodist ministers gathered in Atlanta, and they wanted to have a discussion about the lynching. And they couldn't, after hours of discussion, they couldn't make a decision. They couldn't say lynching was wrong. They couldn't say it was a sin. They couldn't say that this racism. The man who supported uh, the black uh, ministers in Georgia, uh, Wilbur Thurkeld, 
was the only white man in the room who tried to get his fellows to condemn, right now, condemn that lynching. What's interesting is that two months later, when a cat was burned to death in Atlanta, there was a great outcry against that man. There was never a great outcry in Atlanta about the burning of Sam Holmes. There was never. And Thurkeld, in his debate, was undoubtedly attacked because his father-in-law was a Methodist bishop, an abolitionist, who believed that all of the rules of segregation and racism be rejected by understanding that marriage between black and white is not a problem, is not an issue. And Thurkeld was accused of being, you know, in favor of rape just as soon as he wants to condemn lynching. You favor the rape of white women. The governor of Georgia, the former governor of Georgia, was accused of being a rapist and a supporter of rapists, rapists because he tried to stop the lynching personally. He had tried to stop lynching in Georgia for four years, and he couldn't do it because the culture fought rape, threat, black, evil. And that's a cultural issue. It's a cultural thing, and we have to get inside of that in some way. Uh, we can't if we if we push lynching into the past. We don't do that anymore. Oh yes, we do. Yes, we do. And it lingers on. When Angela tried to inve uh, investigate people, talk to people who had remembered lynchings, she found that some of them wouldn't talk to her. Some would talk to her, and then they denied they knew anything about it. These are black people. And there are other. She goes to research, and she finds that they were in the middle of a culture of, of terror. <laughs> and they were still afraid to talk about it because of what it would do to them as they talked about it. Like that. And, you know, we have to, because I don't know. I don't know how you break. But there is a major, you know, problem on race and, and white and black exchange and responsibility. We have to find some way not only to talk about the evil of the past, but the evil of the present. That's what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wilden? Um, it, it, it is... Uh, You mentioned about conservative, liberal. I, I think uh, Dr. Matthews has talked about the culture, the culture that produces lynching, that produces racist thinking. Uh, and I think for Christians, it's always uh, a challenge. Uh, just basically asking, how, how much of me is just produced by the culture? Mm. I live in, the money I make, the kind of car I drive, the color of my skin. How much of that's produced there? How much is produced by Christ? And uh, I think American Christians just made a huge mistake. Uh, thank you, Reinhold Niebuhr and others. 
uh, for confusing the United States of America with the kingdom of God. Absolutely. It's, it's not. And uh, so that means every Sunday we, when the church gathers, we, we're in a kind of struggle to say, can we bless this? Can we not bless that? One way today of shutting down that discussion, though, is to say, oh, you're liberal. Or, oh, you're just talking conservative, you know. And at my worst, that's true. I mean, I'm just mouthing uh, what my socioeconomic class thinks and feels about. For instance, in the Willie Earl lynching, and, and you certainly treat this, uh, the narrative that I got as I investigated this among older residents of Pickens and Greenville and all was, uh, you see, that, that, that was done by Ignorant white people. That was done by that was done by uh, lintheads and all. Well, Will Gravely shows in his book. No, these were very few. Of these people worked in the cotton mills of Greenville. They they were, uh, and the trial was done exclusively by the very best educated white people in town, and so the trial produced a kind of second lynching. Uh, so. Uh, 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 I have an African American student who told me the other day. I, I just want you to know, I, I, I'm just I'm getting tired of, of meeting white people who say, "By the way, I didn't vote for Trump." <laughs> I'm one of the nice white people. And he said, "Come on, y'all all for it." And so, and, uh, that's, so that's an old story. Again, it's a claim that Jesus Christ takes my history. Uh, that Jesus Christ can make me better than I was bred to be. That Jesus Christ can make me a different person from the person my parents wanted. <laughs> that, that born again uh, and all. And, uh, and I think, uh, so the church is a kind of a public demonstration of that. And... Um, but even as I say that, I'm thinking about all the ways we fail at that, all the ways we disappoint Jesus, all the ways that the best you can say about me is, yeah, he, his views are a little to the left of the Democratic Party. That, that's about the best he can do without being specifically Christian. Um, and I love those moments when church pushes us I know a Presbyterian preacher of a very affluent congregation in Florida who after a week of vilifying and saying terrible things about the immigrants and say uh, at the border, uh, call out the U.S. Army, you know. Uh, after that week, he just stood up and read from Deuteronomy. <laughs> you shall not persecute the sojourner in your gates. He, he, he did have a little lead in and saying, there's only one place in Deuteronomy that says, uh, you know, uh, to love your neighbor. Uh, there's a bunch of places where you're supposed to love your, the alien, the, the immigrant. And we, anyway, he just stood up and read it and just shut and said, the word of God for the people of God and sat down. Uh, two families left his church that week. And they said, we're sick of these attacks uh, on our president. And he said, I, I didn't mention, and, and I said, Lord, don't talk on, don't preach against adultery. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so, so in a way, this can be, our history can be a wonderful moment for the church. It, it could be a wonderful moment to say, 
What a great opportunity to say the gospel can free you. The, the, the gospel can open your eyes. So, Professor Adams, and this is a, we're going to have some questions from you in a moment. But I have, a, I have a question. So this is, you see the impact of this on a regular basis. In light of all that you've heard, how does the gospel give hope in the midst of sort of the historical context that we have and what you see in young African Americans today? How, what's, your, what's your strategy? How is there hope in the midst of all of this? Sure. So um, I teach undergraduate students five days a week um, and we cover so many topics uh, but right now this semester every spring I teach psychology of the African-American community so um, for an entire semester 16-17 weeks we, we dive into a lot of the things that we're discussing today um, I'm, I'm going to share with you some of the things that I've heard in class right which um, indicates a certain level of um, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual effects from some of the things that they witness in society. Um, we don't trust white people. It's something that I hear very commonly. Um, I've even had one student, and it breaks my heart to hear it, I've even had one student say, I hate white people. And part of the reason why they say these things is that they're communicating a certain level of pain that they see every single day. So as, as has been mentioned by Dr. Matthews and Dr. Willimon, um, though lynching, in a sense, as we've seen it on images, does not occur, uh, they're looking on social media, uh, they're watching the news, uh, and they're seeing the lynchings of black bodies such as Tamir Rice, such as Laquan McDonald, right, such as uh, countless Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, right, and the list goes on and on. And as they take that and connect that with historical narrative, um, this young generation blames white people for a lot of what they see. Um, it breaks my heart because as a believer, I believe that the grace of our Lord, right, that the gospel of Jesus Christ heals those wounds, right, that it heals these relationships. Um, it puts me in an interesting position because I have to dive into those painful narratives while at the same time helping them heal. So, in, so, so for example, uh, it's the reason why individual discipleship with my students is important. Um, some of the best work that I do is not in the classroom where we're talking about these issues. It's in my office. It's when they come and they pour out all of their pain and they're crying in my office. It's in those moments where I get the opportunity to open up scripture, pray with them, and guide them into these moments, into these uh, moments and these messages of redemption that can help heal some of those, uh, those painful memories and some of those experiences that leads them to a position of pain and of hurt and of uh, hatred in some cases. Thank you. Dr. Matthews, what would you say? You have, and there will be people who will watch this, and so here we're moving into the future, and yet great deal of brokenness and reality of lynching and the impact of that, and, and thank you for broadening the impact of, of, of lynching in every aspect of, of our lives. But what would you say to people who really want to see a different future? What are some things that you would say in light of the lessons of the past? What would you say to us? I am overwhelmed by the past on this particular point. Mm. I'm just overwhelmed mm. by it. Mm. 
When I was doing research... And you're a historian. You're supposed to be the one that... It organizes it and exposes it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you're overwhelmed. Yeah. 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 I, I taught a seminar in Carolina, a research seminar on lynching for three years. Black and white students both, and male and female. And uh, I, one question I always asked the, the class was, why haven't you learned about this in high school? And the black students almost, to a person, said it would be too dangerous. It would hurt. It would bring out hatred. It's something you just couldn't talk about. And so I, can we talk about it in here? And they had to admit that they withheld some of the things they wanted to say because there were other people there, other uh -huh. white people uh -huh. or other black people. I don't know how you get past that, that wall. I, I really don't. Um, there's an, right now, there, there's a crusade, and it's been going on for some time, actually, out of Texas, but throughout the United States, uh, to rewrite American history, to avoid the social history that many of us uh, wrote about and used over the period of time, they wanted the great man. They still want a great man theory of history. They don't want a great sin theory of history. I still think that for the future, we have to explain how the future is affected by the past, and do it. You can focus on lynching, but you have to focus on things that come after lynching because of lynching. Mm -hmm. And that's what Dr. Adams, it seems to me, is pleading. Mm -hmm. That's what I would plead. But I'm not very optimistic, quite frankly. I'll, I'll, are you optimistic? I, uh, I, I generally don't do optimism. Uh, but 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 uh, it's just a wonderful it's an uh, occupational hazard. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I guess when I get pessimistic and I'm kind of overwhelmed by our history and and by our present, and here we are still discussing. I, a student said to me a while back, African American student said, I, "I'm just so tired of the same darn arguments." that my parents had to make, my grandparents had to make. I'm worn out with, with, with white people uh, and, and the, the ignorance and all. Um, and I told them, I said, by the way, I'm a Christian today because of a 16-year-old African-American. Uh, I went to Lake Chunaluska, North Carolina, from which we're all Methodists go to die. And uh, uh, as a 16-year-old for a conference, and as we were signing up, the woman at the conference, this was in the early 60s, and the woman said, uh, would you be willing, you're such a nice boy, would you be willing to room with a Negro? And I said, I was thinking I, I would do anything to get you to think I'm a nice boy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I met Charles, walk, walked in there together. Uh, he was from Greenville. He was a Methodist, but he would not be allowed to walk in my Methodist church. 
uh, he went to a Methodist church four blocks from mine. He went to high school five blocks from mine. He played ball on ball fields just a few blocks from mine. I don't remember anything from the conference, but I remember Charles just talking that night. Uh, and uh, I was just stunned that my Greenville was not his Greenville. Another, and I remember so vividly when he said, let me tell you, when y'all get together in your schools and all, do y'all ever talk about this kind of stuff? I said, no. He said, even in church? I said, especially in church. Um, and he said, what do you think when you get on a Greenville bus and it says, colored patrons sit from the rear, white patrons sit from the front, South Carolina law? He said, y'all talk about that? And I said, you know, I've never, I've never really thought about that sign. And he said, don't you see, that sign is not to keep me in my place. That sign is to keep you in your place. And he says, I don't like my parents telling me what to do. I'm just amazed. You don't mind your parents telling you what to do, do you? And I said, you take that back. I can, I can rebel against my parents. And uh, when, I, that, when the sun came up over June Luska that Sunday morning, I, I told Charles, I said, I'm not the same person I was when I came in here. Uh, when I walked out of that door, I wasn't living in the same world that I had come in from. Whenever I hear the phrase born again, that's what I think about that. So I'm just saying that it, it, that makes in a way living proof that it is that Jesus Christ is able to produce the people he demands. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is dependent on some people being able to risk uh, painful conversations. Uh, yeah. I did a study of uh, multiracial congregations, bi biracial, multiracial, black and mm -hmm. white. Uh, it doesn't take long because there ain't many. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things I found was they would always brag, we don't talk about race here. We, did, we just talk about the gospel, and uh, we, we never mention race. We don't see color. Well, you probe that a little bit, and you find they don't dare talk about race, particularly there, because they're afraid it would destroy the little bit of multiracial harmony they got. And so when you, you talked about it, it, it takes risk to talk about this kind of stuff. But again, yeah. as a preacher... It, that's kind of my job is to kind of gather the church on a weekly basis and say, now I'm going to use a whole bunch of different skills and I got a whole bag of tricks here to get you to talk, to think about stuff you've been avoiding thinking about all week. Mm -hmm. uh, and here we go. It'll take me about 20 minutes to do it. And uh, it, it won't succeed for all of you because I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit getting in there and saying, okay, I'll take over the sermon. I'll, I'll preach. So, uh, just finally say that uh, Gary Wills had a comment. Uh, he said, if you're a white male over 50 from the South, me, uh, there's no way I can convince you people can't change. Because you have lived through seismic shifts in your culture, mm. in your family, in your own soul. Uh, I wrote that quote for everything it was worth in Alabama. <laughs> Let me tell you, I kept 
And they said, do you think Methodist Church can change? I said, this is Alabama. You know where we were 30 years ago, 20 years ago? Uh, Now, we ain't there yet, but come on. And when Obama preached, uh, spoke (laughs) at, at Edmund Pettus Bridge, he said one of the greatest challenges we've got is some of y'all walking around saying nothing has changed and it's not better. And he says to, to think like that is to deny our God-given agency mm. to say we, we, we do, we're powerless over a lot, but we do have some power. And um, he said, by the way, he pointed to some of the veterans from the movement who were still living and there. He said, talk to some of these people who, who were here in 1950 and 1960, you tell them nothing has changed. Let me know how you, what they say to you. Uh, so, I, again, uh, Christians have the wild belief that uh, you don't have to be prisoner to your history. And so, well, thank you. Well, you mentioned taking a risk, and so I would invite us to do that now. Uh, I would invite us as hopefully you are stirred with questions. And so this is an opportunity, and again, this is a rare opportunity uh, that we have. So I would encourage us to be good stewards of that. So any questions that you might have, I would just ask you to, the mic is going to come around. If you could just state your question briefly. Uh, and we'd like to respond in conversation with you. Let's take the risk together. Any questions? Um, so um, you mentioned, uh, I forget, uh, you mentioned that you uh, were changed when you uh, had that uh, discussion with Charles. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that uh, individuals avoid talking about it? Or uh, lynching, or racism, or you know, our American history. Um, do they avoid it because once they are aware, they feel they have to do something with it. They have to respond to it. They have. They feel the responsibility to uh, act on it or, or act a different way. They don't want that. So they want to uh, be ignorant of the fact as well, so they can continue their lives the way that they currently are. Maybe I don't. You're talking about kind of in that me or Charles or. Yeah, I'll just kind of, you know, tying in. You were mentioning yeah. when you were talking to Charles. You were, uh, you were saying that you were shocked that his Greenville wasn't your Greenville. Yeah. You are awakened to some of the. Yeah. Some of the the the, the mindset or even the way of his life as mm-hmm. well. So it was different than you. You know, I think. Um, any of us, if, if, if we make a discovery, I mean, here's one of my, I say about preaching. My, my, def, my definition of how you get to a sermon is you go to the Bible and you hope you'll make a discovery. And then you announce that discovery to the congregation. Guess what, I, guess what God showed me this week? I never noticed it. You know, discoveries are interesting. And discovery, if, if you make a discovery, generally you'll find a way to talk about it and to share that. But laid over that is, Jesus Christ has made you a witness. And you're kind of not allowed, if you get some truth, if you get some enlightenment, you're forced to share that. 
and you're forced to go tell somebody. That's what the women were told uh, at the tomb. Uh, he's risen. Now go tell somebody. And they said, but well, I, I'm in a domination doesn't uh, uh, ordain women. But shut up. Go tell somebody. Uh, well, uh, so I'm, you know, that that is part of it. Uh, and I must say, in the Duke, I was a chaplain at Duke for 20 years. And a lot of those students would say, we got so tired of him saying, uh, when a student would say, I can't believe I did something that bad. Uh, of course, I was drunk when I did it. And I just, I'll never be able to forgive myself. And I said, well, here's where I thank God I'm from South Carolina. Uh, you won't believe what we've done. And our parents are worse than we were. And uh, uh, you're from Minnesota, so therefore you're shocked by your sin. Uh, people in South Carolina are never shocked. But yeah. So I'm just saying it can be a kind of gift, and you do get to share, hey, uh, new life is possible. Uh, some I, I do. I think it's hard to have. I'll just say one thing: working with people who plan to be preachers. One of the most, one of the essential characteristics for being clergy leader, preacher, is to be able to uh, ignite and even enjoy painful. Conversations, mm. Mm. and and to have all kind of ways, and I must say, uh, I got some African American students that just amazed me at their ability to put me in pain uh, in a nice way, and and like it, these kind of gatherings, and maybe one of you will be that today to say, uh, you know. Uh, Nice. I liked your comments. Um, next time, maybe when you're talking about this, maybe you could put that just a little differently. Could you? Could you do? You know, because I think, you know, and I say, all right, I've been corrected by a 19-year-old. Thank you. Uh, I deserve. Yeah. Well, so uh, again, when preachers, I was just with some preachers in Charlotte this weekend, and they say it's just hard to talk about race uh, in a white congregation and all and and I said, come on, we're, it's, it's, Martin Luther said, the sermon is a scalpel that cuts to the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when somebody comes out and says, well, I, I was really hurt by what you said today, and I said, so? I mean, <laughs> I, I'm a preacher. That, that's what we do. Uh, and I said, you had to get dressed and come to church to hear talk like this. You, you, you won't hear talk like this on Fox News, okay? Uh, you had to come down here for this. And, uh, well, here, I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, thank you guys so much uh, for what you've shared so far. Uh, I just thought that it may be helpful uh, because it's typically easier for African Americans who are a little more invested in the narrative to make the connections of the lynching of a um, of a Tamir Rice to the lynching mm-hmm. of a Willie Earl. Um, could you maybe like you got all three of you kind of tease out kind of defining lynching? Uh, I think it'd be helpful on to get on camera and to kind of make that connection for those who aren't as easy to make that kind of like how, how is this a lynching and that a lynching? 
So I'll, I'll start. Um, so I think, um, so you mentioned from uh, an African-American perspective, right, there's, there's a very unique kind of vantage, a very unique kind of perspective. So um, commonly, right, within African-American culture, uh, when we look at lynching, uh, we don't necessarily separate the tree from the bullet, right, or the bullet from the fist or the fist from the bat or the bat from, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or the knife and the taser, whatever you want to say. So um, the way in which we commonly make those connections is in something that we actually have, have already heard, um, an unjust, um, inhumane, brutal treatment uh, of an African-American, most likely a male, uh, where there's absolutely no justice, Right. So when we look at the story, for, for example, when we watch the, uh, the video, right, we're, we're talking about a gentleman uh, who was unjustly accused. Um, they had no evidence, so they couldn't necessarily try him. So they literally open up the back door of the jail for him to be hauled off at the hands of an angry mob. Right. Um, that sounds a lot like every police officer, <laughs> every police department. Every individual who has committed an atrocious, violent act against an African-American that was not indicted, uh, not found guilty, right? And so through, through the lens of African-American culture, we commonly make those connecting points where there's been violence and no justice. Yeah. I don't know how that's... I, I, <clears throat> since I'm hard of hearing, I didn't hear everything you said. Oh, what... What, what was the question? Yeah, so he was he was asking about how since, since lynching uh, can be you know since lynching has a very specific kind of definition um, when we mention things such as like uh, a Tamir Rice or even a Rodney King or individuals who were murdered by officers yeah. unjustly with no justice how can we help people make these connecting points from lynching to more common uh, experiences? <laughs> it's a major problem, obviously. Let's go back into the 19th century. That's where I'm comfortable much of the time. Um, African Americans didn't think lynching was much different from the legal justice system. W.B. Du Bois discovered, much to his surprise since he grew up in Massachusetts, when he was doing field work in Georgia, he found that, I guess everyone here knows who Du Bois was, one of the great American intellectuals, one of the probably greatest. Du Bois found that, to his surprise, African Americans believed that legal executions were lynchings. And that was because they thought they couldn't tell the difference between a white mob and a white jury because people on the jury might have been in the mob. You, know, you have to understand that. And their experience was not just lynching and execution, but daily interaction. You know, So that there's a... When Angela Sims say it's a culture of terror, I don't know how you convey this to people. I don't, I don't really know how I could do it. Uh, I can engage in conversation with my students and we can talk and get corrected many times. But in terms of beyond the academy, I, 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 I defer to Will. <laughs> I'm embedded in the academy, but uh, 
Yeah, uh, but you are. You know, I like I like what we've the definition's been given. I, I maybe would add to that one. To me, Lynch, and I'm, uh, I sure agree with the boys. I, I sure agree that lynching. We need a broader, you know, kind of concept. Um, I think it's offensive when someone like Clarence Thomas during a hearing says, I'm a victim of a high-tech lynching. Yeah. Uh, during it, uh, you're being questioned about what you acted with a woman in your office. That's not lynching. Uh, so I am I'm nervous if, if we get too broad. Uh, on the other hand, I'd add to that uh, black bodies. To me, lynching is intimately tied with black bodies. If you notice, these horrendous images we've been shown, uh, there's exposure of the black body. It is violence done to a black body. It is bodily harm. In that way, it's very similar to crucifixion. And then the other way it's similar to crucifixion is it's, it's public. It's public spectacle, as we've seen in these uh, pictures. Uh, crucifixion was done by the Romans generally primarily to Jews, and it was done in the nude. Get it? These, these Jews are barbarians. They mutilate the genitals uh, in their religion, uh, and it, it, it was public spectacle to watch uh, and there was something about it. it. wasn't only killing this person; it was, it was humiliating the bodily presence of this person. So I would add that with uh, maybe to lynching, and therefore, you know, when Michael Brown's body is left in the middle of the street for how long? Thirty, you know, a long time. Long time. Uh, Hours. <laughs> I, I got to think. Wow, that's. That's getting real close to lynching. So, so, and I do want to. I'm sorry, and, and I do want to add something to that. So, I, I think part of the uh, the difficulty in making those points is because there seems to always be this narrative surrounding the victim, right? Um, so, for yes. example, you know, with yes. with, with Trayvon Absolutely. Martin, I mean, it was what hours or days before we heard reports about him smoking marijuana, right? Um, Michael Brown, right, is shot, left dead in the street, right, hours, days before we hear about him stealing, right, allegedly, these uh, cigarellos from uh, a market, right? So one of the things that's very common is that there always seems to be this spin on the character of the victim to almost make them look as if they're worthy of being killed or lynched or whatever word we want to use, right? I mean, literally within minutes, within days, the character of the individual is assaulted. They go from being a victim to being a criminal, right, who is being investigated or chased for an alleged act. Um, that narrative makes it very difficult for the broader public to really uh, connect those dots because it's always presented as an individual worthy of killing. The ideology of lynching was to make monsters of black people, of black men, of black bodies. You objectify the evil out there, so you ignore what's in here. And when you push it out there, then you can do anything you wish to it. That's what was going on in, in, in the lynching process. Uh, th there were different kinds of lynching. I mean, it wasn't all spectacular. There were, in, there were lynchings by small groups of people who just went out, took a person to the jail and shot him. My, I studied a spectacular lynching because it had all the elements 
of the small lynching as well as the, the larger lynching. And what you had, what you had with Tom Wilkes was a nice kid. He took care of his retarded brother for ten years, and then when he felt he was autonomous enough, he left on his own, took on the name Sam Hose, went to Atlanta, then to Newnan, Georgia, and tried to make a life for himself. When he was confronted by, and all he asked for Alfred Cranford, the man he killed, all he asked was back wages. He then asked to have time off to go visit his mother who had become ill. Now, to the people in this room, does that sound like hubris? Does that sound like something that is threatening? Does that sound like something that there is a monster threatening you? No. He just wants his money. He wants fairness. He just wants a personal response. The Cranford goes and gets a gun. The next day says, I don't want to hear any more about this. Tom is chopping wood for the man's fireplace. He sees the man bring the gun up. He said, I've had enough from you, whatever he said then. He's frightened. Tom takes the axe and throws it at him, hits him in the head. Five days later, it is, re it is reported that he raped Mrs. Cranford. And the rape became the story. The self-defense, but there is a black narrative of the Tom Hose, or the Tom Wilkes, the Sam Hose. Line. The black narrative is just what I've described: uh, self-defense, misunderstanding. I, in some cases today, <laughs> maybe fewer cases than I used to think, he would have got off with manslaughter for seven years, twelve, two years maybe, or self-defense, depending upon the jury, but not then. This, this, the black narrative then talks about him, interestingly, they make the narrative into a martyr, but the martyr is a witness, and the way he acted as he was being sliced and burned, he said, he said two words, oh Jesus. And he didn't say anything else. And he, he endured the blood and the burning. White, the white reporter there is just stunned. He is very much impressed. He's seen it. He, he was amazed at the, at the bravery of this man. He's on the only one in the crowd that I could find that had that kind of response there. So the white narrative and the black narrative are different. Tom, Sam Hose became Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and, and Rice. I mean, it was a man named Robert Charles triggered the New Orleans race riot of 1900 because of his memory of what he thought had happened Sam Hose. That, that then got translated into a song called the Robert Charles song, became part of the jazz legends of African-American music in the 1920s.
It's, it's amazing. You know, it spreads out into the black culture. Whites don't know anything about it. Have absolutely no knowledge of this. They don't want to hear it, and they can't hear it. Now today, probably there is more ability to hear things than it was then. Um, I, I sometimes I live in ambivalence and ambiguity. <laughs> the current surge and revelation of white supremacy that we see and throughout the world, but in the United States. White supremacy against black and brown. Maybe that is, maybe this is a, a positive result because now we see that people are free to express themselves in ways they wouldn't express themselves earlier. Call it political correctness. And maybe then we can face it when we see how evil it is. When we couldn't face it before because we didn't have the evidence that we want for this generation, not for previous generations. And I know that's a positive mm -hmm. comment, but... Uh. Dr. Matthews, um, a positive comment is fine. Please. Dr. Matthews, that's making the best out of the worst, I think. <laughs> we, are, we are out of time. Uh, however, Dr. Matthews, you said something in, at one point where you said you're not sure you have hope. And I just want to, first of all, thank all three of you for really being honest and really having a level of integrity in this conversation with humility of I don't know. And thank you for gifting us with that. But it's out of the words of a man who was being lynched that maybe are the words that we need to live on mm. and to leave on. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Amen. Maybe the point of this conversation, maybe that's what we're brought to. Amen. And maybe Amen. we can say, oh, Jesus. And maybe that means the conversation needs to continue. All right. And, and my hope is that this conversation will continue. Because there's so many other people who need to understand that the reality of who we want to be today has a lot to do with our past. But we have hope for our future. Oh, Jesus, who is alive and who is at work. We can work up your stuff. Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs>